Hey everyone, happy Monday after the Super Bowl. I'm Dominic Catronio. In a way, yes, it is technically baseball season. We're still in the midst of a very fun basketball season with Giannis and everything going on in the NBA right now. So we're not getting ahead of ourselves, but pitchers and catchers do officially report on Thursday for the Brewers. Now, Devin Williams has already been down in Arizona getting ready for Team USA in the World Baseball Classic. Uh, A few other guys have already been down there early as well. But the point is, we are going to hear the pop of the mitt very, very soon. And throughout the rest of the spring, I mean, shoot, it feels like spring right now, right? 50 degrees over the weekend. This has been great weather in Milwaukee. So I want to give you a quick preview as to what's to come before we get into the Keith Law interview here. Uh, we got more content coming from spring training, and I'm really excited about some of the stuff we've got. I don't want to show my hand yet, but very excited about what's to come down in spring training. I will be there personally starting Sunday, so uh, getting ready to enjoy the sunshine again and As pitchers and catchers report on Thursday, position players officially report a week from tomorrow. So next Tuesday, and then games will happen uh, next Saturday. Not this coming Saturday, but the first game will be against the Dodgers at American Family Fields of Phoenix. And I'll be there for all of it as well. When it comes to what to expect, I will be on the ground. We'll be talking to council. What we have planned right now is just quick wrap-ups. You know, in this feed, you will find quick wrap-ups of, hey, here's what happened at spring training, what you need to know for tomorrow, that sort of thing. Obviously, there's not major news every single day, but if there's relevant audio to pass along, we will do that for you here on these feeds and on my social media feeds. I'm at Dom underscore Catronio on Twitter, and you can follow on Instagram at Dom Brewers WTMJ. So to Keith Law now, and Keith, if you don't already know, he's the prospect writer for The Athletic. He spent years and years at ESPN and a variety of other places. He has been doing this for a very long time. He knows what he's talking about. And I'm really excited for you to hear his perspective when he zagged and a couple of other prospect writers zigged when you talk about uh, where he put certain guys in his top 100, like Jefferson Carroll made his top 100. He also had Tyler Black making his top 100. And he ranked the Brewers farm system, actually, as the second best farm in the NL Central, only behind the Pirates, but really not that far behind. So we get into that. We get into how hard it is to rank all of this in individual thoughts on some of the top guys that I know you have heard of. So Keith Law, you can follow him on Twitter, at Keith Law normal spellings and read his work in the athletic if you don't subscribe to the athletic you should if you subscribe to the new york times you probably have a a partial or at least some sort of subscription i think with included by having a new york times subscription so it's worth it i read it every day along with fan graphs it's very very worth it even just for stark and rosenthal right if you just want the national perspective there's some great stuff in the athletic but without much further ado thank you for listening let's get to keith law this is an incredible ordeal to put together not only a hundred prospects, then you got your just missed list, then you've got the guys that just missed just missed list, and then inevitably the comments and the tweets are full of oh, you missed this guy, you missed this guy. Is there ever a moment where you sit down and say, Look, this list has grown too large. I need to just hit publish. <laughs> Take me into the final few tweaks and edits of a top one hundred and a just missed list for a for a prospect writer. Yeah, that is, uh, it's, I get to that point with some individual team reports where it's like, have I said enough? I feel like I've said enough. And sometimes on specific players, right? If it's the, when people were mad because some Red Sox fans think I'm an idiot for the guy I had 16th in their list, which to me, I'm like, you need to go outside. 
<laughs> if that's your what's getting you this upset. But also, like, there's there a point where do I continue to provide more detail on players like that? Because those are often the players that most readers know less about, right? They know who Sal Freelich is and Jackson Churio, probably. But the guy who's way down a team list, they may know less. And so sometimes those are the situations where I do want to say a little bit more, whether it's to explain why a player is where he is on my rankings or it's to just give more information to the readers. But that is an endless process, right? You can keep going forever. Somebody, I just saw a comment, my Giants list went up uh, this morning and there's a comment asking why I didn't have a 25-year-old pitcher who struggled in double A last year. And I'm not saying that the question's invalid at all, but it's like, hey, I got to stop somewhere. Right? Yes. I write notes on, if you count the little others of notes sections, it's like 650 or so players. And I do the whole thing. All the writing takes place in four weeks. It's longer than either of the books I wrote. So I, yeah, I have to stop somewhere so I can like sleep and eat. I mean, I literally have a list of things now to do that has nothing to do with baseball because I just put everything aside for the last two weeks. It's incredible the amount of work that you put into it. Congratulations on just finishing up all the top 20s for The Athletic and also your top 100. Again, I encourage folks here on this show many, many times to subscribe to The Athletic. Odds are there's a deal somewhere that you can get it. Or if you already subscribed to the New York Times, you also can find a way there too. But there's great stuff that you guys put together. And the other thing that pops up to me about your prospect lists and maybe, look, everyone's very qualified at what they do, whether it's the athletic, MLB, fan graphs, prospectus, whoever you choose. Is there ever a moment when you hit publish on yours and then there's reaction to saying that, oh, you have a guy vastly different rank than another publication or you have somebody included in your top 20 or higher than yours and anyone else? Is there ever a moment where you're looking like, well, did I miss that or did they miss that or am I high on this guy or is there a conversation with yourself on that? It's pretty uncommon for that to happen because, you know, there's a very small group of us who do this stuff full time. And like Kylie and I have known each other for years. Eric and I have known each other for years. He's he's probably the one I talk to the most. Um, I've known Jonathan and Jim over at MLB for forever. I know JJ at Baseball America. And so nobody's of all our lists. What is that one? It's like five of us, five lists. None of those is ever really a huge surprise. We disagree. Of course we disagree, right? As I said, we have different processes. We're looking for different things. And we talk to different people, but we all talk enough, I think amongst ourselves over the course of a year, especially where there's usually not a big shock. There might be one person on my list and Jonathan will reach out and be like, oh yeah, you had so-and-so on your list, but it's never like we're all friendly so it's never like oh you're a moron i can't believe you put that guy on there but it's sort of like oh yeah he wasn't close to ours i actually asked jonathan i was finishing uh my top 100 was up and he he reached out to say something and uh something complimentary and i said hey was um i asked him was justin foscue of the ranger system was he on your list or wasn't he on it now he fell off and he said yeah we we went through it. he wasn't on their list he wasn't on mine either um but you know, I do sort of like to know after mine is done, like, am I out with the other folks? Because one, I th they talk to different people than I do. So it's good information to know if I think my opinion is different. Um, and also that that generates lots of questions from readers, too. If I am the only one with a player on my list, if I'm the only one with a player off my list, I'm thinking, really, this is more about the top 100s. Then they'll come back and say, well, why? And that's fine. I'm completely comfortable having a different list. 
but you need to anticipate questions. I think that's the job of a writer in this situation is be prepared to say, I don't have Colton Kowser of the Orioles on my top 100, and here's why. Yeah, it's a, it's a preparedness to the uh, activity is just with anything as a broadcaster, as a player, as a writer, it's being prepared for what's going to be the first thing asked or of me and things of that nature. And it's uh, like I said earlier, it's a heck of an ordeal. I can't imagine it's 650 players. I'm just trying to wrap that around my brain right now just to have write-ups ready to go on all of those guys. And then the detail that you can put in on a Brewers top 20 as you're here talking to the Milwaukee faithful, as we jump into the, actual nitty-gritty of these you know players that you've listed i want to look at kind of a bird's eye view of the brewers in your organizational rankings you have them in the top 10 at number eight second best in the central and i see you know three teams or four teams in the central of your top 10 pirates at six brewers at eight cardinals at nine and cubs at 10 you know we, we give crap to the you know central for being a weird division the last few years in the al and nl but there's something in common with all these markets that they're small markets and that there's a, a actual desire to make sure their farms are intact. So as I prelude all of that, how do the brewers stack up and what do you like about their system from afar to put them in your top 10? So they've done a really nice job um, in a couple of ways. I mean, one is obviously it, it helps that they have hit on a combination of some international signees, two big ones, Churio and Caro, and also had a bunch of pretty successful, mostly college. Um, I guess I'll throw Mizurowski in there as a Juco guy where early returns are very good, but some high picks of college uh, um, of college players where, look, that's a tough market to draft in. And it's Tough for the Brewers because they they don't operate with a large scouting staff. They're one of you know if you look in the top ten, the majority of the teams up there still um, they integrate traditional scouting with more modern analytical work and video scouting that's done obviously done more out of the office. People aren't necessarily at games as much, but the Brewers have done a really nice job with some of their higher picks, even though they're generally leaning on the on the college market. And I think they've they've hit on enough of those guys, not just guys who are necessarily going to be stars, but guys who just project to have major league value. That's really important to ranking any farm system high. I think it's more important if you're the Brewers, you're not likely to spend huge money, say, in free agency. Um, and you're going to be constantly replacing some of your best players because some of them won't, you know, you're, you might try to retain some of them, but you won't retain all of them necessarily. So you've got to be able to bring back, bring up talent to replace the guys you're potentially losing. And they had a couple of large international signing classes before the last couple of years before the pandemic. And so far the returns on those classes are pretty good. Um, maybe not top, top of the line, but those classes are going to generate a bunch of big leaguers, you know, maybe, maybe one or two stars and the guys I mentioned earlier, but I think several other guys there are going to at least end up having some kind of major league value. And that also, you know, helps buttress the system. If you were the Brewers, you're going to operate lower payrolls and not spend big in free agency. You kind of have to hit in all those departments. You have to hit in the draft. You have to hit an in international. You have to hit in trades, which they made a trade for what they traded Josh Hader. And uh, I think so far, especially if you include the fact that they they what, got Estuary Ruiz and then traded him away and used him to get William Contreras, who I love. He's not a farm. He's not a prospect, but I thought that was a great pickup. They're doing pretty well. They're they're just executing extremely well. And it's funny for me to see that too, because we think of them as having obviously Stearns is gone now, but 
the decisions of the last couple of years, you think of them following a very Houston Jeff Luno model to running baseball ops, but they're drafting better than the Astros did at the end of Luno's time. And they're doing better in international than they did under Luno too. So yeah, they are sort of like the Astros North, but they're executing a lot better. And I find that very, very interesting. It's it's funny you bring up Luno too. I mean, obviously Stearns, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree being a former Astros assistant himself. But when I look at this system too, with the Brewers in recent memory, you think of the Woodruffs and the pitching and the Burnses that have come up, you know, from the farm system. But it's been a long time, really, since the early 2000s with Prince and Braun arriving that it's position player heavy and late in that yeah. they've really attacked this front. Do you see that? And what, do you think there's a reason for that, for the Brewers having such a heavy presence position player wise, as opposed to pitching? I think, I think it's a philosophy, you know, you know, now I do think back to, I'm just sort of revisiting my comment from a moment ago and also thinking what we've seen in Baltimore, Mike Elias, another person who came out of, obviously out of that Astros front office, there's more of an emphasis when going after young talent on uh on whether it's drafting signing uh internationally you emphasize the position players they're just more predictable right whether it's because of health or development and and i think that it was it is also true i know it's true in baltimore they believe they're able to do more in player development to help position players. So my guess without ever asking Brewer specifically, is this your, is this by design that you're particularly in a draft that you're going fairly heavy on position players early? Um, I do think it's a general strategy. Let's go draft saw and sign position players. And maybe we can use those guys to trade for pitching at some point later on. Um, or maybe they say, well, we'll the one thing we will spend on is we'll go sign pitchers in free agency. They just haven't had to, right? They haven't been faced with this decision yet where they're going to have to figure out how do we replace any of those guys as they start to approach free agency, which which is going to be a, a big challenge for them. I also think if I'm a Brewers fan and I'm starting to get worried, obviously, as you know, Burns and Woodruff especially approach free agency, what do we do? You've got a, a lot of players who could play center field for other clubs and you only have one center field spot of your own. And so someone's going to get traded probably two or maybe two or three of the, you know, what are the five guys in this on my list who could play center field in the big leagues? Those guys are going to end up packaged in a trade at some point. And that's great, right? This is what you do. It's great for the player and it's great for the team. If you have a surplus at one position, don't hold on too long. We've seen plenty of examples of teams doing that too. And then ending up losing value as a result. But I think that they, uh, I mean, they almost have to end up trading where it's great for a lot, great strategy, get lots of up the middle position players. They're always valuable. But yeah, at some point you have to convert those guys. Yeah. Like the Reds have a million shortstops in their farm right yep. now. And the Brewers have a million center fielders and they're always in demand. It's something yep. that everybody always, always wants. So let's jump into the guys. And it's funny you mentioned position players and developing and a guy that originally is staying up the middle shortstop now center fielder Jackson Chorio what else is there to say about Jackson that hasn't been said before really he's your number three on your top 100 it's very realistic to say that at some point early in the season assuming health and standard performance that he will be the number one prospect in baseball at some point in May so yeah what is there to, to know about Jackson Chorio from your eyes and why you put him at number three so the the two guys, one, two, Corbin Carroll and Gunnar Henderson, and, and I've said before, if you want to argue those guys should be flipped, I, I have no 
dispute. They're both great. They're also both in the big leagues. And so there's also, there's value in that. There's just added value in a, a guy who's going to produce in the majors this year versus a guy who'll take a year or more from now. That That's a pretty substantial difference. You could almost look at, just draw a little line under two. And then the next two guys I have Jackson Churio, Ellie De La Cruz, the shortstop in the red system. Those guys are younger, further away, but probably offer more upside because they're so young and because they're still growing and developing and improving in so many different ways. And, you know, with Churio, I find it so interesting. You mentioned he was originally drafted as a shortstop and it does seem like the Brewers people believe this too. Just getting into the outfield kind of unlocked everything. Like we all knew he was a prospect. It was not my top 100 a year ago, but I knew who he was. And then he's, once he's sort of full-time in the outfield, adapted to it a little bit and he took to it pretty quickly. It was, it seems as if it was a situation where it's, he could just worry about hitting and it worked. Right. It is, it has unlocked so much in the bat. And scouts who saw him rave about the instincts, the on field makeup, that he is the, he is one of those players that if they are, you know, grading out the tools, when it comes time to put an overall grade, they're bumping them up a half grade or, or more because of the way he plays, how he looks, how he interacts with teammates, little moves that he's making, the kind of stuff you don't necessarily see if you're just watching on TV or following box scores. One of the things I think scouts are really valuable for is saying that that guy has something extra, something that's not showing up directly in the performance, but that is going to continue to matter and is going to pay off in tangible ways as he moves up. He does have some things to work on. Obviously, he could be a little more patient. I think he gets away with a lot at the plate because he's so talented and because he's got great hand-eye coordination and can cover the plate exceptionally well. He's going to have to work on some of those swing decisions. Maybe he struggles in double-A, a little bit in triple-A. Maybe it doesn't happen until the majors. I think there's one bump in the road coming for him. I say that without any concern about him long-term. I think he's going to be a superstar and a, and one of those sort of fan favorites too from the moment he gets there. He's going to be all eyes on him all the time. And that's... I don't know if that's worth anything in terms of a prospect's value, but as somebody who also just really loves baseball and I love players, those are the guys I want to watch. It's, I'm glad you mentioned the bump in the road, too, because it really seemed like this was a smooth sailing year. I don't put too much stake at the end of the year in double A. It's the very end of the year. Mm -hmm. He played a full season. Most people should not overreact to that. But you're right. He's not even 19 for another month, and he's going to face pitchers that have been in professional baseball for you know, three, four, even five seasons in some occasions in double A in a pitcher's league in the Southern League in Biloxi. So I'm putting out the call now, and I think you can help me on this too. I was like, hey, it's not the end of the world if the guy has a rough couple of weeks while he's figuring out that that's what player development looks like, right? Maybe there's something we don't know about as far as coaches trying to advise him, you can only attack pitches on the outer half, or hey, we only want you swinging at fastballs. Things of that nature happen in the minor leagues, and a bump is bound to come, right? Yes. Oh, yes. I uh, think that... I think back to Mike Trout, right, who's as talented a player, obviously, as we've seen, who you know, people forget... He was called up to the majors at 19, which I think Churio will play at 19 this year also. And I'm not saying Churio's coming to the majors, but but if. Um, and I, th I, I think there's it's an analogous situation where Trout came up to the majors at 19. He played, almost played enough to lose his rookie of the year eligibility. I remember the debate over whether how we were counting his days on the roster is like arcane stuff. But he just, just missed the 
losing eligibility. So he was actually number one on my prospect list for the next year, ended up rookie of the year the following season. And when he first came up, he wasn't very good, actually. Um, He did. He had an adjustment to make. It wasn't a huge one. It was a small sample, too. But it was, hey, you know what? Maybe this guy's not quite ready. He's a superstar. No one questioned what the ceiling was going to be. Major league pitching is different. And I think that that challenge has only gotten greater. I think that the gap between the majors and the minors is as big as it's ever been. And a large reason for that also is just that major league talent is better than it's ever been. And so, you know, especially because Churio, I worry about this more with players like Churio, like Trout, a little bit like Ellie De La Cruz too, where they're just so talented that they get away with stuff. They just keep moving up, moving up, moving up. Well, he's too good for this level. He's too good for this level. You almost have to push him up till he fails. At some point, he will reach a level where he can't, his tremendous skills don't cover all of his deficiencies. And then he's got to make that adjustment. I am, I never try to predict where that's going to be because I'm not good at it, but mm-hmm. it's coming at some point. There will be a point where Jurio does have to tighten up. I think it's more swing decisions. I hate saying plate discipline because people think that very specifically means like walk rate and strikeout rate. And those are certainly part of it. But I think for Churio, it is much more about making sure that he's getting into the right counts and deciding when to attack, getting to the right pitches that he can drive, as opposed to say, just boosting his walk rate. I like guys who walk, but the walk isn't necessarily the end game. There are plenty of prospects in the minors who draw a lot of walks, weren't on my top 100 because I think they're missing other aspects to the game. And I just think for Churio, it's more of a, a, a general approach thing as opposed to just saying, hey, take more pitches, draw more walks. You're going to lead me into another prospect I wanted to talk about later, but walks in first name came to mind. I think you know where I'm going. Tyler Black and his on-base mm-hmm. percentage. You're one of the few guys that had him in your top 100 as well. And he is still considered a, a, a top six, five you know, prospect across most of the publications. Tyler Black, I, I think is a guy that sometimes doesn't get all the pub because it is top heavy with Churio and Freelick and Caro and Weimer that they kind of hog the oxygen. But Black, there is still something sexy about on base percentage, and he's a guy that injuries have really derailed him. What can you share about Tyler Black's development in the Brewer system? Yeah, I mean, he's just got to stop getting hit by pitches, right? Like, I think he's that's that's unfortunately a part of his game. I love that kid. I like, I really love watching that kid play. He is one of those where he's not a superstar. Um, he and you know, he might be a super utility player in sort of the raise mold where he's playing a lot of second and third and bounces to the outfield. He's never the best player in your lineup, but he's often one of those guys where you're really glad he's in the lineup. And he is, I mean, they describe him as like good crazy in the sense that like every pitch is, if he didn't swing, it's a ball and the umpire's an idiot. And he will, you know, he's one of those like knock you over just to try to take the extra base. And yeah, that stuff does count, actually. A guy who plays like that and also has substantial skills, obviously. I want those guys. I absolutely, you love having those guys. They will always have a place to play in the majors. And I think the fact that his he's and he can actually hit good pitching too. I don't mean to diminish that too. One of the reasons I even liked him in the draft when the Brewers first took him was he played for Wright State, but they'd had a couple of non-conference series against pretty good pitching, and he hit it. That was the biggest thing going into that draft. It's the worry I always have with mid-major or less uh, or lower college hitters. If they haven't faced any decent pitching, then do we really have a read on what's going to happen when they get to A ball and almost everyone's throwing 94, 95? They may not know where it's going or have a second pitch, but velocity's 
pretty boring at this point. It's everywhere. But we saw Black hit velocity. We saw him hit better stuff. And that has continued to be true. And I think the Brewers have been very smart, too, in just continuing to maintain that positional versatility. It One just opens up more possibilities for him to play for them. And then also... If he does end up included in a trade at some point, there's just going to be more interest in him because teams will, will look and say, well, there's lots of places we can use this guy. I mean, it's funny. They do do a lot of business with the Rays, and he seems like a very Rays sort of player. It would not shock me at all if he ended up playing for Tampa Bay at some point because he does a lot of smaller things that are that the Rays particularly value, including that versatility. And I think that the Brewers, obviously, with Matt Arnold coming from the Rays, too, they, they see the world in a pretty similar way. And I think of... Currently, a Ray, a former Ray that's on the Brewers, Mike Brasso, fits that mold perfectly. Mm-hmm. A guy that always swung above his weight, has you know one of the coolest highlights from the 2020 weird season off of Aldis Chapman. And I, I think of like a, a Jake Cronenworth as he was developed by the Rays and obviously ends up going to San Diego. And I, I see mm-hmm. exactly that. I agree entirely with Tyler Black and somebody that if you're on base and if you're scoring runs, it's hard to ignore guys like that continuing to produce no matter what level you're at. I want to go to a guy that really has produced really quickly. And a lot of, Mm -hmm. as a short guy, as a guy that's five foot nine in shoes, I can Mm -hmm. relate to Sal Freelick a lot. Not a lot of power. You know, I know chicks dig the long ball, but there is still (laughs) something really, really fun about a guy that can hit it and go, controls the strike zone, and plays some fabulous defense. Sal Freelick is bound for the big leagues at some point this year. Why are the Brewers so high on him? Well, he's he makes pretty good quality contact. He's got a great eye at the plate. Um, people d- disagree on how much power he's ultimately going to get to. I don't know that it matters a ton. Um, he can play the hell out of center field. And that is going to play every day for just about every team in baseball. Unless you have Mike Trout out there. Sal Felix is an everyday player and a really good one. And th- honestly, I think the only thing where I found any disagreement among anybody, scouts, analysts, et cetera, it's just what's the power going to be like ultimately? He's not a big guy. I don't think he's any bigger, smaller than Alex Bregman, who has been a 30 homer guy. And gets a little help from the home ballpark, but not a ton. Sometimes if you just hit the ball really hard and you do it, with, obviously, with the correct angle, as we know all about launch angle at this point, a bunch of those end up in the seats. I'm probably a little bit on the low side in terms of what his power output is. I think he's going to hit for a high average with a very high on base percentage. I expect him to be you know, kind of in the top 20 in the league and on base percentage. I think it ends up a lot of doubles and triples because obviously he can run as well um, and plays great defense in center. And that's probably an all-star in a lot of years or maybe a guy who should be an all-star. I use that term more in the general sense of uh, this is a guy who should make an all-star team who actually makes the all-star teams, obviously very much a popularity contest. But Freelich is one of those guys who will be so valuable. You look up at the end of the year and it's like, oh, he had nearly five war again. Why wasn't he on the all-star team? Like he could be that kind of guy because it'll be defense. It'll be on base percentage. It'll be added value on the bases, the stuff that's like just a little less recognized, say, than high home run totals. But that's if if he never ends up more than a 10 homer a year guy, he's still a hell of a player. And if he turns out to be a 20 homer a year guy, guess what? I was light and he's going to end up on MVP ballots. He's he's going to be a Woba darling, to say the least, as far yes. as, you know, he'll hit yep. a ton of doubles and maybe yep. not as many homers, but he's going to hit the ball hard and he's going to be running in the gaps. Yep, absolutely. And another one who's like pretty fun to watch. I mean, it's not like the Brewers are doing it that way on purpose, I think, but they have ended up with a couple of those players, maybe because they're a little undervalued by some other methods. And they are they can be guys who are a little undervalued by the traditional scouting methods that I extol all the time, too, that 
that their skill set is, yeah, it's not plus power. I mean, it's 45 power on the 20 to 80 scale, but he does so many of these other things and he plays really hard and it is all out all the time. And, you know, you worry a little bit about those guys getting hurt, but I would have picked those guys from my team eight days a week. Yeah, it's that New England attitude that he's got going on for sure. Uh, I want to get to Joey Weimer as well before we get ready to wrap Mm -hmm. up here shortly. But Joey Weimer, look, there's a lot to talk about his swing and the daddy hacks that he takes every time he's up there. But at the same time, uh, I read a piece in Fangraphs this past week. You can't fake exit velocity and not many guys hit the ball as hard as Joey Weimer does. Now, granted, there's a lot of energy expended in, in order to do that. But <laughs> as you talk to one end of the extreme with South Freelick being able to maybe hit 15 homers on the high end on a really good year, you're talking about a guy that legitimately could be hitting 30 homers a year if it clicks for him mm-hmm. in the big leagues. And I think probably the most likely outcome for him is that because they're swinging miss, there's always going to be. He swings very hard all the time. And his plate discipline is fine. Not great. It's not a strength. And maybe it's just by choice, right? I can, when I hit it, I hit it really hard. I might as well swing more. And in the off chance that I hit something that I didn't even know I was going to square up. I mean, that's definitely an approach that a lot of teams have advocated, especially for guys who have this kind of exit velocity, this kind of raw power. Pretty easy to see him be a 25 home or 25 steel guy, even if he's hitting 220. And I think that is probably the most likely outcome. I, I see more ceiling than this. And that's why he was on the top 100. But a guy who hits 220-230, but draws enough walks, his on-base percentage is over 300, not by a lot, but over it. And then he is hitting a ton of doubles, 20-odd homers, stealing bases, playing good defense. That actually ends up being a pretty valuable player. And those players, too, There's, I think there tends to be a little more variance. And on the years when the BABIP is a little higher and he's hitting 250 or so, He's like a five plus war player. And a few more of those balls go over the fence. He is, it was interesting. He was not, when I do this, the top 100 is, it's an iterative process. I create a first hundred and then I send it out to scouts and execs and they come back with feedback and I change it and it goes back and around and around. He was not on the original cut. Um, And neither was James Outman with the Dodgers, who I think of as a fairly similar player. Toolsy, a bit more swing and miss than you want, but offers a lot of upside and and both these guys are pretty close to the majors and i think and weimer got a bunch of votes actually from scouts too we're like yeah we know the swing and miss it's fine there's real real upside there you do not see guys who run like this hit the ball this hard can play the outfield potentially be really good in the outfield where uh, one more adjustment turns them into superstars I mean, I look at Willie Adamas' slash line this last year. A 238 average and a 298 OBP is a bad year by his standards, but he still hit 31 home runs. And the guy that you just described, a, a good year from Weimer, hitting a little over 300 for his on base, 230, 240, which generally is league average these days, the way baseball is gone. Don't remind me. It's kind Makes of crazy <laughs> that it's wild. But I mean, there's no player, unless you're Mike Trout or Juan Soto, really has it all. And this is a case right. where... You're okay with, like you're saying, if you swing and miss and you strike, I mean, Aaron Judge still struck out 170 times last season, and he set an all-time record, right? You take good and bad. It's something that happens with every prospect and what you're trying to figure out. Uh, We've talked a lot about position players. I don't want to ignore pitching. And specifically, we talk about junior college in the rise that it's had in the draft the last few years. Jacob Mizorowski... I mean, you look at him and you can see why somebody would select him at the heights that he's reaching at 6'8". But Mm -hmm. him, 
Aaron Ashby. There is a track record of junior college players being selected high and really being more polished than you would expect versus, say, a traditional Division One Power Five school. The Brewers really have kind of started to tap into that market. What do they see in Mesorowski, and do you think there's something that causes this recent junior college boom? I think the pandemic actually was a big reason for that. And a lot of guys finding because we then you had this backlog, right? Players, four-year college players got the extra year of eligibility and suddenly playing time was much harder to come by. And so I think that's pushed some kids to either start out at junior college or leave a four-year college to go to a JUCO, even if it's just for a year to try, which I think was Ms. Yerowski's case anyway. Um, I may be confusing him with someone else because there were a lot of JUCO guys, but mm-hmm. a lot of these guys were, you know, leave a four-year college, go play to JUCO for a year, and then, you know, maybe transfer to a better college in the end. Um, I love it. I love JUCO. I think it's great for a lot of kids. It can be great for academic reasons. It can be great for kids who aren't ready to go away from home, might want the development year. It could be good for kids who are just, you, you know what? You're not quite good enough to be drafted or to go out to go pro now, but you don't need three years also. So I, you know, when anytime a parent asks me, it's not very often, but I always suggest junior college, especially if you don't have a good four-year option available to you right now. Mizorowski, he, you know, he started out awful last year too. When I first heard his name, I was like, that guy, we're talking about a guy who's walking a man and inning for a Juco. That is not somebody who generally makes my cut. And then just a little time passed, a little, like some very small adjustments. I think just actually the weather warming up probably helped. And suddenly he always had great stuff. He started throwing a, a lot more strikes. And I mean, he's up to 100. It's good, got good secondary characteristics on the pitch. The slider, guys who saw it in instructs in the fall were saying it's probably a major league 70. 80 is the top grade you can give. So that's pretty high praise. Um, I don't love the delivery. It's going to take a lot of work. And obviously there's always some risk. Do you change a delivery, try to get a guy to throw more strikes or do you leave it and say, this is good enough and we'll just see what happens. I'm in the, I, I see Mizorowski. I see the size in those two pitches and think you might make a starter out of that. If you can smooth out, get the delivery a little more repeatable and he does need to develop a third pitch, you're a chance at a number one starter. Now he doesn't make my top 100 because that's a lot of ifs, but that's how I would approach him from a development standpoint, even understanding there's, there's risk. The easiest thing in the world would be to say, we're just going to put you in the bullpen and like run you up the ladder. There's just too much upside there. I would not let that go by uh, without trying to get him, especially to a delivery he can repeat for more strikes and 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 also to try to minimize the risk of injury. But there's, I mean, I, do they have a pitching prospect with more upside than this guy? I don't think so, unless there's somebody maybe in the DSL who I don't know about. But I think that when you've got a chance to develop someone like him who could pitch at the top of a rotation, you do whatever it takes. I mean, the Brewers are very good at developing their own homegrown pitching. They have a very, very sterling reputation on that sort of thing. You look at their current rotation as things stand right about now. Keith Law, really appreciate the time joining us here on Brewers Extra Innings and 620 WTMJ. Uh, Again, The Athletic is where you can find your work. We can follow you on Twitter at Keith Law, if I'm not mistaken, just straight up easy spelling. I didn't listen to the site implodes on there. Yep. (laughs) Well, shoot, Twitter might implode on itself before the sun implodes. That's definitely something on the case. Well, Keith, thank you so much for the time and really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.